Hey guys, we have an incredible podcast coming your way. We're going to teach you exactly how to look great, feel strong at your ideal body weight. How? By teaching you about the latest innovations and the discoveries about hormones, the herbs, the natural approaches that will help you to optimize your stem cells, your mitochondria. Please stay tuned. This is a show you must listen to. There are sexual dysfunctions that can set in. Diabetes is a well-known cause of male impotency. Coronary heart disease, patients frequently shun or avoid sexual activity because they fear sudden cardiac death. Impotency can be due to antihypertensive drugs. Shortness of breath may lead to, if you're out of shape and out of condition, uh, to sexual problems. In 1978, Nicholas Delgado founded the Nutritional Counseling Center, which later became Optimum Health. As a health educator, Nicholas has completed nutritional analysis on the composition of foods for thousands of people. He could figure the composition of their daily diet in four minutes with a simple calculator. Do you look like you're fit? Do you look like you're in great shape? Would you like to get in better shape? Then there's several things you can do. I'd like to talk about the importance of exercise. Exercise can improve the quality of your life as you get older. It's been found that in a study done on 13 men and uh, 25 women average age 65 years of age, when they exercise just one hour, four days per week, mainly walking, that they were able to stop the loss of calcium out of the bones and maintain healthy bones. Now, they compared this to a group of people who did no exercise, who during the year lost 9% calcium, a terrible loss and weakening of the bones. Exercise can help to keep your bones healthy and young and strong. In a group of 70-year-old individuals, they took these 70-year-old men and got them exercising about three or four times a week, mainly walking, and they found the results were quite impressive. Their sitting pulse rate decreased 4%, which means that their heart was beating stronger, putting out more blood with every beat. Their blood pressure decreased 6% for the systolic number, the top, and 3% for the diastolic. Their breathing capacity improved 7%, and their endurance workload capacity improved 76%. So they increased their energy that much. Uh, we're talking about 70-year-old individuals in a period of around two or three months. That's not long. That's pretty good. There's several articles coming out now of individuals who are breaking records that were set by Olympic athletes. For example, a 50-year-old recently broke the marathon record set in 1948. A 65-year-old broke the record for the marathon that was set in 1908. These people are getting better with age, not worse. One of my favorite stories I heard about is Dr. Paul Spangler, who's 78 years old. His exercise includes a 10-mile run a day, six days a week. He swims 10 to 20 laps in his pool every day, and he adds an additional 45 minutes of light weightlifting three times a week. Instead of complaining of aches and pains, he says, I have a zest for living that I did not have before. I do not have back aches anymore, no colds. I have regularity of bowels. I sleep better. I eat less fatty foods and more vegetables. 
His resting pulse rate, listen to this, is a phenomenal 42. He has a blood pressure of 120 over 72. He's in far better condition than most people in their 20s. How do you feel? Are you in great condition? Now, I don't expect you to go out and match Dr. Paul Spangler's exercise routine. You should only increase gradually your exercise routine, or at least maintain a regular routine. I read stories about people I'm sure you've heard of, like Jack Lane. He's been exercising regularly. Look how fit he is, reaching age 70, in great condition. Exercise is very important to all of us. Now, when you begin an exercise program, uh, our doctors suggest that you have a stress EKG, treadmill test. The type of exercise you do will influence your capabilities on the treadmill. If you can last at least five minutes, you're in poor shape. <laughs> if you can last 10 minutes, you're in better shape. If you last 15, you're even better. 16, 17, 18 minutes, you're doing really well. Past 20 and so forth and higher, you're a pretty conditioned athlete probably. The type of shoes that you wear are important. Uh, I bought myself a pair of New Balance shoes. They have a, a good cushion to them. There are several other good brands. You can go to a good shoe store in, in a department place and try out Adidas and so forth. There's got to be a brand that should fit for you. The first pair of shoes I ever bought was a kind of a cheap brand from a large department store. And they looked just like all other jogging shoes. But they were so inexpensive, I thought, gosh, I'll buy these. I bought them, and I ran around on them. I started to get little knee problems. Well, I didn't attribute it to the shoes until I started reading different books that told me that it may be the problem with the shoes. So I decided to go and buy a different pair of shoes. Well, these shoes cost over $50, $60, 70 New Balance, but they're worth the investment. They look the same, but the cushion has a real spring to it, and it helps you to run more effectively and absorbs the shock of running. It's good to maintain a good, smooth surface while you're running as much as possible. Run on uh, soft surfaces when you can, grass and so forth. You might even go all out and get yourself a, a motorized treadmill. Oh, you could probably get one for about 1500 or so. What an investment. It's worthwhile. We know that if you don't have a treadmill, you can do all kinds of other exercises. You can go to an aerobics dance class and meet regularly and have camaraderie, make new friends. Maybe you like swimming. Go swimming and, and exercise on a regular basis. This will be good for you too. You can play team sports like basketball. The key is a variety of exercises on a regular basis. You might even enjoy weightlifting or Nautilus equipment or machines. And I personally like to lift weights. I like the powerful feeling that I get and the strength and the building up effect. You'll be able to exercise depending on what you enjoy to do. How much aerobic exercise do you require? Well, the minimum time to strengthen your heart and lungs, depending on the exercise, is as follows. If you go running, jogging, dancing, or using a mini trampoline, or even ice skating, you only need about 12 minutes of exercise. Include about three minutes of warm-up and cool-down to reach your target heart rate. Uh, that'll be your training level, and get your heart rate up to a certain level that we'll mention in a moment. Now, 15 minutes is sufficient. Uh, you need a little bit more exercise, 15 instead of 12, for walking, swimming, bicycling, either stationary or outdoor, roller skating, 
or super circuit weight training. Super circuit weight training means that you lift weights and in between weight uh, sets you run around a track or you jog on a jogger trampoline. That's one of my favorite exercises, a combination of weightlifting and mini trampoline. You can also exercise for 20 minutes uh, with the following type activities, jumping rope, chair stepping, running in place, jumping jacks, rowing, uh, or weightlifting, or just simple aerobics uh, type exercises. You can expect improved fitness in either aerobic capacity or strength or both. If you do super circuit weights with aerobics, you'll improve your aerobic capacity by 12% and your strength increase can be as much as 23%. To get some benefit, you probably would want to lift weights, even if you don't do much, 15 minutes three times a week at least, and then add that with aerobic exercise and you'll be doing really well, especially combine it at the same time. Aerobic training by itself, dance classes or, or running will improve your aerobic capacity the most of all, up to 25%, 15 to 25%. Your strength increase is expected to be about 12%. Now if you choose to do circuit weight training, where there's less rest, 5 to 10 seconds between sets, your aerobic capacity may only improve about 5%. Your strength can increase 18%. Now, if you're just using weightlifting, and you rest a long time between each exercise, you'll hardly have any aerobic capacity improvement at all, maybe 3% at most. Your strength may increase 30%, but your heart and lungs will have not benefited, and uh, in the long run, that may not be as good as you would like. So you need to combine. If you're going to do weight training, do aerobics. If you have to choose between the two, you should do at least aerobics. Uh, you can do lightweight lifting to reduce the rate of injury and increase your overall strength, however. As a typical guideline then, you need to exercise at least four to seven times per week, at least 12 minutes up to 60 minutes a day. Be sure to include three minutes for warm-up, maybe just slow walking and a cool down, slow walking or stretching. When you exercise, it should be at your target heart rate. Check your pulse rate just before you start exercising. Count the number of beats. The way you do that is you find your pulse a little below your thumb on the thumb side just below where your wrist bends between the tendon and the bone. When you find your pulse what you do is you count the number of beats and you check it for 10 seconds. So count the number of beats. Ready? Begin. Three, four, six, Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay. Stop counting. When you have that number, you multiply times six. So if you had 50 or 60 beats per minute, you're in pretty good condition. If you had 72 to 80, you're in fair condition. Now, if your pulse rate was higher than 80, 90 or 100, you're not in too good condition if you're just sitting there listening. Higher than 100 is, just means that your heart has to work that much harder. Now, if you did not find your pulse, it's too late. I don't think we can help you. Now, you have to ask yourself this question. Is it better to have a high pulse rate or a low pulse rate? Of course, it's better to have a low pulse rate because that means your heart puts out more blood with every beat. Now, during exercise, it's natural that your heart rate will increase. And it should increase 
according to this formula to get some benefit. You take the number uh, 220 and you subtract that from your age, 220 minus your age, and you'll come up with the estimated heart rate there, maximum heart rate. Then you multiply times 0.65 if you're a sedentary individual with maybe more than 15 pounds to lose in weight. Even if you're an athlete, 0.65 may work if you're highly conditioned. Since an athlete doesn't need to get up to as high a heart rate to benefit because their heart functions more efficiently. So for an example, if you took the 220, which is the upper number that a heart could possibly reach, minus age 48, you'd come up with 172. Then you multiply that by 0.65, which means 65% of maximum. 0.65 times 172 is 112. So if you're age 48, your target heart rate should be about 112 and maintained at least 12 to 60 minutes during your exercise period. Now if you're unable to reach your target heart rate, just take a longer time, go a further distance, and do it at least 20 minutes uh, or maybe 30 minutes instead of the 12 or 15 minutes. At the slower pace, you'll still benefit even if you don't reach your target heart rate. Eventually, you'll be able to reach that ideal range. The way that you exercise will eventually strengthen the heart, the heart will get stronger, and then your resting pulse rate will gradually reduce. Instead of having a pulse of 72 or 80 or 90, your pulse will gradually reduce maybe down to 60, possibly even 50, or like Dr. Spangler, down to 42 if you're in great shape. There's several books that I like to recommend for exercise. One of my favorite books is by Dr. Kenneth Cooper. He has a new book out on total fitness program and aerobics way. He has several books that he's written, and those are all very motivating books to read. Fit or Fat, Covert Bailey, has written a good book on exercise. Exercise is something that many of us enjoy, and some of us even get addicted to. It's been found that when you exercise regularly, your body releases endorphin, a hormone, which actually reduces pain and fatigue. It's a runner's high. It's incredible. You feel better with more energy than you ever thought possible. This can even be addicting, which is a very good positive addiction. It'll keep you exercising regularly. I've had some people, I remember one lady who came to our program and she uh, would just walk and her pulse rate would get up to over 150. So she came to our program and we told her that she needed to start exercising. But she said, oh, I'm too tired. I don't have time to go out in the dark. And I'm just, just the usual complaints. So I suggested to her to get one of those little mini jogger trampolines. That's one of my favorite exercises. And I told her to just jog in place on it for 12 minutes to 15 minutes a day, about three or four times a week, ideally daily if she could. Well, she called me back the next day and she said she could only last three minutes on the jogger trampoline. And she was really discouraged. I said, three minutes? I said, you must be jogging too fast. I said, just walk on the trampoline. Just pick your legs up and down. Now remember, this lady could get her pulse rate just by walking to 150, so she probably was at her target level. And I instructed her again as to how to find her pulse rate. Well, she did this. She slowed down, and that's what some people have to do. They exercise too fast. She slowed down and was able to last for a full 12 to 15 minutes. 
That's the key. Most people will go out jogging or using a jump rope or jogger trampoline and they'll just do it too fast. You need to slow down and maintain a constant pace. Well, she called me six months later and said she had done so well that she could now get out a jump rope and she was using it on her jogger. Well, I didn't say anything about a jump rope on the jogger. And she said, well, when I was a teenager, I used to do that all the time. That is, use a jump rope. And I thought, since I felt so good now, that I would just do that on the jogger trampoline. Well, that's certainly a, quite a success story. You can use the jogger trampoline, pull it out, and set it in front of your TV. You can get them for as little as, oh, $39, up to $69 at a swap meet or a nice store. Some of the stores guarantee them for a year or more on the springs and the mat. And uh, I think it's just one of the, my favorite exercises. As I said, you can jog while you watch television. It's less jarring on your joints. You'll feel uh, energetic after exercising on it. I notice that sometimes when you go out jogging on the hard pavement, that sometimes you come back a little fatigued. And if you do, you can get on the trampoline and jog an extra three minutes and your strength will return. You can even do these muscle testings where someone pushes your arm down. You hold it straight out and they see how strong you are and they push your arm down before you jog. Then you jog on the ground in place and then they try your strength. And you'll notice you'll be weaker. Well, then you get back on the trampoline and the person will notice that you're stronger again. It's an amazing thing. It might have something to do with the electrical activity of the body and the cleansing system. We're not exactly sure why, but you do seem to increase your energy after using these jogger trampolines. They're a wonderful exercise. You can use, uh, while you watch TV, plug in your favorite video tape and watch it for a half hour or an hour. Put on music. If you're like me, you want to do several things at once. So what I do is I watch the television plugged in video, and then I have earphones listening to music, and if I could, I'd even hold a book and read it at the same time. I haven't figured out how to do that. I'll probably get one of those stands and start doing that next. <laughs> but uh, I can accomplish a lot while I'm exercising. I have a lot of fun. As I said, the next thing I'm doing is getting myself a treadmill. And I'm going to be running in place on that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Exercise can relieve stress. A recent study showed that when they monitored people who in a classroom stood up to speak, public speaking, who had never had any experience. The student, for example, was asked to get up and talk on a topic. They monitored their heart with a long distance recorder, a special apparatus, and they found that their heart rate went up very high while they were speaking. It got up to 150 in some cases. They were so nervous. So stress can actually increase your heart rate, which may increase the fat levels in your blood because they're not exercising, they're just standing there. The adrenaline shoots up and everything. Well, then they found that people who exercised regularly did not have this problem with stress. They took a few college professors who they knew were exercising on a regular basis. And they got up in front of the class, and they monitored their heart. Their heart rate stayed at about 60 to 66. In fact, one of the professors got in a very heated argument with one of the students, and the pulse rate barely even creeped up to about 69. So we're finding now that exercise is a wonderful way to control stress and reduce stress. Exercise may help you to improve the quality of your life. We hope it can increase the lifespan too, but at least you'll feel better and you'll have more energy. As we get older, we need to work at it, staying in health. We need to be positive 
and exercise, eat the right foods, drink clean water, try and get clean air whenever possible. Hopefully as a culture we can work on improving the problems with pollution and so forth. And our advice to you is to work on good health. Now part of good health is having a healthy sex life. And on that topic, a patient came to see the doctor and the patient said, after one checkup, you made me quit smoking because I smoked too much. Next, you made me quit drinking because I drank too much. Now I'm just back from my honeymoon, so this checkup scares the hell out of me. He's afraid the doctor's going to tell him to give up sex. Well, fortunately, our doctors will not tell you to give up sex. We feel that uh, a natural part of good health is maintaining a healthful sex life. Indeed, there may be indications that the length of your life and quality of life can be improved by maintaining a regular healthful sex relationship. There are sexual dysfunctions that can set in. Diabetes is a well-known cause of male impotency. Coronary heart disease patients frequently shun or avoid sexual activity because they fear sudden cardiac death. Impotency can be due to antihypertensive drugs. Shortness of breath may lead to, if you're out of shape and out of condition, uh, to sexual problems. And this was reported recently in the Archives of Internal Medicine. Well, March 1981, not so recently, but it still holds true for now. If there is male sexual impotency, one of the principal causes we've recently discovered, according to Masters and Johnson and other researchers, is that atherosclerosis actually infiltrates the arteries leading to the male organ, the penis. And when this happens, a male can hardly even achieve an erection as they get older. That seems to be one of the principal causes of impotency. There are certain sex clinics that are I know of that they can actually test the organ and determine whether there's atherosclerotic plaque buildup, if that's a cause. Of course, the solution is exactly what we've been telling you about. The low-fat, reduce your cholesterol intake, eat the water-soluble fibers, and it may help to overcome this problem. But that may take time, because remember, cleaning the arteries can take sometimes oh, a year to three years, but at least that's better than staying impotent for the rest of your life. Diabetes, of course, we have a solution for this problem. Listen to the tape on diabetes, learn how to control your blood sugar level, and this may solve that problem too. Now, another cause of impotency could be medications. Ultimately, if you're in really good health, you won't need medications. And drugs like Indrol and diazide and diuretics, you should be monitored by your doctor very closely. Eventually, if you can become free of them, then the side effects of impotency can just disappear. Many, many reports have shown that 50% of the causes of impotency are related to medications. Excess alcohol could lead to sexual impotency, so learn to become alcohol-free. I know in my life, Younger on, I used to drink alcohol in large quantities at times, and I thought that that should be a part of my social life when you go out to parties or to celebrations or birthdays. Well, you know, I found out later that I could have more fun without drinking alcohol by just drinking some Perrier water and fruit juice and talking with people and dancing and having a great time. 
Alcohol should not be associated with pleasure. Oh, heck, occasional alcohol, fine. But excess is the danger. That's a problem. It can lead to impotency and other damaging effects to your life. Smoking. Smoking can accelerate atherosclerosis, and that should be stopped. Otherwise, it'll lead to sexual impotency. I don't mean it will. It may. Fatigue is a common problem, and that can be due to lack of sleep, or maybe you're doing too much exercise. That temporarily could lead to impotency. Maybe even rapid weight loss, more than you should be losing uh, too rapidly, could temporarily cause impotency. Don't worry about it. Just reach your ideal weight and do it more gradually. So the solutions for male impotency could include the optimum health, low-fat type diet, exercising, moderate exercise. Don't do excessive amounts. Get off drugs if the doctor can help you with this area. Get enough rest. Sleep is very important to good health. And maybe you're having sex too often. So if you do have sex, alternate. You don't have to reach orgasm every time, and that may improve the intensity for when you do. Reduce stress in your life. Uh, allow time for sex. That's important. Intimacy in a planned situation can be much better. So to improve your sex life, are you physically fit? Can you do at least 50 sit-ups three times a week? The stomach muscles are very important in regards to a good sex life. Aerobics and a low-fat diet will keep your body looking attractive and fit. Then you'll become more confident, which can improve your sex life. You can start TCK, which means touching, caressing, and kissing. That helps to build intensity at least 30 minutes or more. Learn to stimulate the sexual organs in a proper manner. There are certain books that we'll recommend in a little bit that teach you about the G-spot, the prostate, the clitoris, and masturbation, and so forth. It's been discovered, according to the book, The Hyatt Report, on the subject of female sexuality, that less than 30% of women can reach orgasm by intercourse. Well, the reason is, is because anatomically, the clitoris is located in an area that is not directly stimulated during uh, sexual intercourse. Uh, in some cases, in the right position, it may reach the, the G-spot, but one should stimulate the female first through an understanding of clitoral stimulation. And if, since the female generally takes longer to uh, reach a higher level, if the male spends that time with the female, when they do ultimately have sexual intercourse after the female has achieved at least one or more orgasms, then the sexual relationship will be more satisfying. Sexual capacity, what's the ultimate? Well, Masters and Johnson did a study, and they had uh, volunteers. One was a 73-year-old lady who had achieved more than 50 orgasms in eight hours with a vibrator. The study had to end uh, because they ran out of time, and uh, she, although she could have continued, they had to push her out the door. She had a smile on her face. What kind of vibrator was it? Well... Hitachi makes a workout massager, apparently, and uh, you can order one. Just call a toll-free number, 800-344-4444, and it's called the Sharper Image Store, and apparently they can uh, mail you one. Its cost at this time is only about 29 or 30-some dollars. Some of the books we recommend would include The Hyatt Report, H-I-T-E, by Cher Hyatt. An excellent book on a nationwide stu study of female sexuality. 
This is a good book for both male and female because you should understand each other. A really good book, a new book, uh, Lonnie Garfield Barback, B-A-R-B-A-C-H, Ph.D., and the title, For Yourself, The Fulfillment of Female Sexuality. Uh, it explains the latest in information. Another book called The G-Spot by Whipple and John Perry and uh, Latis, L-A-D-A-S. In that book, they relate the amazing discovery of the G-Spot, which is located uh, further up in the vagina, and the book describes how to stimulate it. And it seems to be best to stimulate after a clitoral orgasm, and one can actually have multiple ongoing orgasms. It's incredible the peak of level that one can reach. They even talk about strengthening the PC muscle, the pubococcygeus muscle, also known as the love muscle, and by squeezing the area as if you're retaining urine or holding it back. That, if you squeeze it rapidly, oh, something like 20 squeezes 10 times a day, 200 squeezes a day, will strengthen and decrease the rate of urinary incontinence. Uh, that can replace the need for surgery in, in older women. Also, it's been shown to increase the intensity of sexual orgasm. It also seems to increase the intensity for men, too. There's also information in the book about the stimulation of the prostate, which before was not considered a sexual organ, but in the male it does appear to stimulate and, and lead to satisfying relations. Now, another book, The Cosmo Report, Women and Sex in the 80s by Linda Wolf, we recommend. There's a lot of other books on the market, but the ones we've reviewed, we were not happy with. They didn't seem to have very good information and a lot of uh, misinformation. So, on your way to optimum health, of course, I forgot to mention that women who approach menopause may have certain problems that can be dealt with in a natural way. If there's thinning in the vaginal lining, then you can just use fruit oils or coconut oils. Apply apricot, coconut oil, safflower oil, or baby oil, or vitamin E. I don't mean eat it. I mean apply it. If you use KY jelly, that may dry too quickly. Avoid oils like alcohol, Vaseline, or petroleum jelly. They may cause infection. Now, if you're having hot flashes with menopause, uh, it's been found that exercise can help to stimulate perspiration. And once you learn, the body learns how to sweat, it can cool the body down. Uh, that can help to relieve the symptoms. Also, a low-fat diet seems to reduce symptoms and discomfort related to poor circulation. Vigorous exercise can uh, tone your skin and muscles. And as we told you, the PC muscle can be worked satisfyingly. And we even know now that osteoporosis can be prevented. You don't have to use estrogen therapies. Estrogen therapies seem to only just retain the bone that's there. Uh, they don't seem to be able to reabsorb lost bone. Uh, it seems that exercise and good nutrition is the way to re-strengthen the bones. Also, we would recommend that you attend the programs. Thank you very much. Good luck and optimum health. The first portion of this discussion will be on vitamin and mineral needs. The second portion will be on your requirements for protein and fat by the director of the Optimum Health Seminar Program and Optimum Health Research. Food is your best source to meet your nutritional needs for vitamins and minerals. Only 42 vitamins and minerals have been discovered at present, certainly with the possibility that several more are yet to be found. Now, your best chance of getting the nutrition that you need would be from whole natural foods. 
Now certain foods we do not include as a good source of vitamins and minerals like liver, egg yolks, or cheese because they may be high in harmful substances including fat, cholesterol, or salt. So you're smart to choose a variety of whole natural foods that we recommend and eat them in quantities sufficient to meet your calorie needs and by eating a wide variety of fruits, vegetables, grains you will improve your health. Another good thing you need to do is start sprouting of seeds, beans, peas, wheat, or sunflower seeds, alfalfa seeds, lentils, chickpeas. This helps to reduce the fat content of the seeds. It enhances the protein and the enzyme quality of the food. And it's fresh and alive. Live food may include certain nutrients that we have yet to understand are necessary. It's simple. You just get a glass jar and you put a oh a teaspoon up to a quarter cup of seeds into the jar. It's best to use glass instead of plastic. The uh, light coming through affects the growth. A wire screen or a cheesecloth cover would be fine. Then soak in some water, leave them soaking overnight, pour off the water the next day, and then rinse it one or two times per day, maybe in the morning and at night with fresh water. And leave the jar at a 45 degree angle after you pour out the water. Keep it in a dark area or indirect light since the sprouts grow best in this situation. Sprouts are ready to eat by the fourth day. Usually you can start a new jar one, one day and then start another one the next, another one the next, and then rotate the jar so you have a constant supply of fresh sprouts. And they're great for sandwiches and salads. I love to stuff them into whole grain burritos with beans and some salsa or put them in between my sandwiches with other fresh vegetables and it's just wonderful. And you can make up your whole salads too. Sprouting can increase vitamin and mineral content of the food from 50 to nearly 2,000 percent, especially for many of the B complex and the vitamin C. Now you may need to use supplements also with our program. Only if you're eating processed foods, white flour, sugar, or alcohol, living in a polluted environment. Well, who doesn't have those situations? It's pretty common. In other words, you're going to cheat on occasion, and we know that. So you might want to take a vitamin mineral supplement as a preventive formula. Basically, a, a multiple vitamin and mineral that at least meets the RDAs possibly a little more with the B-complex, especially if you drink alcohol or, or getting a little more sugar in your diet than you want. Then you would continue to follow the nutrition guidelines. Now you don't want to take too much of supplements. Too much can be toxic and not enough may not be good either. So let me give you some ranges of what you should watch for with vitamins and minerals and foods. Vitamin A is a substance that comes from either animal or vegetable sources. Now the animal source of vitamin A has been found to be somewhat toxic, especially if you take in 100,000 international units per day. In a four-month period, it was shown to cause nerve bone cartilage damage. It has been known to halt the growth in children, lead to blurred vision, headaches, hair loss, fatigue, and even force cholesterol deposits into the tissues. On the other hand, not enough vitamin A is led to xeromphthalmia, an eyeball uh, disease, a blindness of the eye, and aged skin. We can avoid both of those problems, either getting too much or not enough, simply by relying on the vegetable source, beta-carotene, of vitamin A. Because you cannot overdose on the vegetable source. If you, for example, eat 
carrots or sweet potatoes, which have for a cup of carrots, about 16,000 international units of vitamin A, or a cup of sweet potatoes, 20,000 international units. The RDA is only about 5,000 international units, somewhere between five and 15,000 would meet just about anyone's needs. If you ate too many carrots or used too many uh, sweet potatoes or mustard green or squash, oh, eventually maybe your skin would turn a little orange and yellowish. But once your body's ready to convert that beta carotene underneath the skin into vitamin A, it will. So there's no toxicity known with vegetables. It's safe to eat them in uh, large quantities. We would want you then to avoid the animal sources of vitamin A as much as possible. It's not a good thing to be using liver, egg yolks, or butterfat to get vitamin A from, although they're a high source. As we said, they can be toxic. It'll build up in your tissues and lead to side effects, and it also, of course, those foods contain cholesterol. Basically, most uh, vegetables and many fruit, like cantaloupe and so forth, yellow and orange-colored uh, vegetables and fruit have a lot of vitamin A. And our diet, Optimum Health, supplies more than enough, probably more than most other types of uh, dietary approaches, certainly more than the American diet, in vitamin A. Vitamin E is important to prevent rancidity. It uh, helps the oxygen in the body and protects the cells throughout. Vitamin E is also necessary on a low-fat diet, but if you're on a high-fat diet, people tend to require even more vitamin E. But don't get too much vitamin E because vitamin E is a type of a fat. We have found that the RDA is about 15 international units per day. That's the recommended daily allowance. However, if you're going to take vitamin E as a supplement, it's best not to exceed 400 international units per day. It was found that at about 600 international units, there is an increased rate of triglycerides, fat in the blood, because vitamin E is a fat. If you break open those little capsules, that's fat. Even the dry form of vitamin E is just like with dry whole milk, that turns into fat too. 15 micrograms, which is quite a bit more, has been known to lead to weakness and fatigue. They experimented with vitamin E for heart conditions. Dr. Shute of Canada is well known for these experiments. And he reported that it would reduce the rate of angina or chest pains. The problem was that he had never done double-blind studies. That is, divide the group in half and give one group placebo and the other vitamin E and see if it really worked. So. Uh, at Stanford University, they decided to see if Dr. Shute uh, studies would work, and Dr. Shute agreed to set up the protocol so he had complete control over what was taking place to make sure it was done according to what he believed would be best. At the end of the study, they found that the placebo worked better than vitamin E. So our recommendation might be to use placebo. But of course, uh, without uh, creating a humorous situation here, it has been found recently that vitamin E actually decreased the energy level in individuals, uh, in hockey players. Their endurance was somewhat less than those on placebo. So some of the claims for vitamin E are at this time not becoming uh, very clear. They're, they're not being found to be accurate. It is true we do need vitamin E, but it would be best to get it from your whole natural foods. For example, cucumbers or collards, either one, or kale, contain a, a good amount of vitamin E. Cucumbers has about eight international units per cup. Two cups would be uh, completely your, your entire requirement for the day. 
summer squash, two cups of summer squash would equal 15 international units. You can try millet or green peas, uh, and various other vegetables and fruit contain vitamin E. Look to our book for a listing. Vitamin B12 is a part of the B complex and certainly necessary to good health. The B complex vitamins are helpful in helping your body to utilize carbohydrates, to burn them for energy, to utilize the protein and the fat that you eat. Vitamins are like an enzyme that help to utilize and put the food to use. So don't take vitamins without food. Some people fast and they take vitamins and think they're helping themselves. You, you need to take the vitamins if you do along with your food or depend on your food to get your nutrient source from. Now vitamin B12 deficiencies are rare. They usually occur when there's a malabsorption problem of the B12. In other words, there's this intrinsic factor enzyme that may be absent. And in that event, even if you're getting proper vitamin B12 from your diet, you may not be able to absorb it. In that case, in some rare instances, we need to do um, injection. The doctor would recommend that. And it, a, a vitamin B12 deficiency would be picked up on most blood tests, uh, reports on the blood cell counts. Excess B12 has not been reported as a toxic problem. You do need at least four micrograms per day, which is a very small amount, especially since your body can store vitamin B12 from five to 10 years in the liver. We have a nice storage capacity. Now some of the foods that you can get vitamin B12 in, uh, for example, could include uh, a half a glass of nonfat milk. Uh, that would suffice for most people's needs each day, uh, again, because there's a storage factor. One ounce of oysters has five micrograms, which is your entire B12 requirement for the day. An, um, uh, two ounces of crab would have uh, 5.7 micrograms, and that would mean there's only 57 milligrams in the crab. So an occasional little bit of oyster or crab sprinkled into your food would give you all the B12 you need. Uh, herring, the fish herring, two ounces per day would give you uh, five micrograms uh, surpassing your complete needs and that would have a very uh, low fat level, low cholesterol in the fish. Now recently Nutrigrain cereals and grape nuts have been fortified in their wheat and corn flakes and uh, in most cases one to two cups would meet all your B12 requirements. Non-fat dairy products, uh, miso, soybean, fermented, uh, these things have B12 in them. If you choose not to use any animal products whatsoever, and for some reason you're not getting fortified uh, whole grains, then uh, you may need a, a B12 supplement to prevent possible problems down the line like pernicious anemia. Now, vitamin B1, which is thiamine, has been discovered to be very essential to good health. We find that if you do not get enough vitamin B1, it can lead to fatigue, loss of appetite, emotional problems, beriberi, uh, excess hyperthyroidism, shingles, and even death, which is a pretty bad side effect. Vitamin B1, according to the RDAs, is set at 1 to 1.8 milligrams per day. And it's important to take the vitamin B1 as a complex if you use it as a supplement. A supplement range could be safe anywhere from 2 to 100 milligrams per day. The higher dosage would be taken if you're using a lot of alcohol or sugars. The lower dosage would be used at 2 milligrams as a preventative formula 
in, in combination with other B vitamins as a B complex. Now, to get proper B1 from your foods, you could use uh, sprouted sunflower seeds. Uh, when you sprout them, they're nice and low in fat. They're very nutritious, and there's, uh, it meets your entire vitamin B requirement for just one cup in a day. Millet is an excellent source. Split peas uh, will meet your RDA requirement at 1.48 milligrams. Various beans and green peas and bulgur wheat, asparagus, these are all, uh, including brown rice, uh, good sources of vitamin B1. Usually B1 deficiencies occur when people eat a lot of processed like white bread, white rice, sugars, and alcohol because it burns up so much of the B1 vitamin by trying to utilize the carbohydrate that you may develop certain symptoms. It's best to switch to whole natural foods, whole wheat bread, not regular wheat bread or white bread. In the long run, you'll be much better off. Now, vitamin B2, which is riboflavin, is essential too to good health. It's the most common American deficiency that develops. The RDAs have been set at 1.4 to 2 milligrams per day. To meet your needs from foods, you can include items like wild rice, which isn't eaten too often. However, it is a good source of B2. It tastes a little, uh, probably a little more flavorful than brown rice, the long, kind of dark-colored wild rice. Millet is a good source, mushrooms, collards, and broccoli is a wonderful source of vitamin B2. Various other beans and peas and split peas are a good source also. Deficiencies can occur and they'll show up possibly as cracks in the corners of your mouth that can affect your growth. And as I said, it's a very common deficiency problem. If you're going to take a supplement, it would be best to have anywhere from 2 milligrams up to 100 milligrams per day together with a B complex. Vitamin B3, which is niacin, is necessary to good health. The RDAs have established you need about 15 to 20 milligrams per day. Foods like, for example, uh, oh, a quarter cup of tuna, which is only two ounces, has the equivalent of 12 milligrams, uh, almost your complete uh, B3 requirement for the day. Since there's tryptophan present, which is a type of amino acid protein that converts into B3, tuna is kind of pushed up a little higher than most other foods. Broccoli, just using generally about a cup and a half of broccoli in a day would meet all your B3 requirements for niacin. Uh, sprouted sunflower seeds are excellent, and split peas, mushrooms and beans and peas are all good sources of vitamin B3. If you develop a deficiency from B3, it can lead to pellagra, blotchy suntan appearance. The skin has these little spots like that look like it's dirt or suntan. It can lead to paralysis and death, which is a pretty bad side effect. People on certain islands that started uh, switching from whole grain, coarse brown rice, when they switched to white rice on certain islands, they developed vitamin B1 and B2 and B3 deficiencies. And sometimes as much as half of an island of people would die until they finally realized they had to switch back to their whole foods and that solved the problem. Now you could get too much B3 niacin excesses anywhere from over 300 especially to a thousand milligrams per day have been known to lead to liver damage, possible blindness, and headache. 
Niacinamide doesn't lead to that uh, blindness problem. It's generally because the niacin dilates the blood vessels too much, especially if it's taken all of a sudden in large dosages instead of a gradual step up. The supplement range that would be safe would be anywhere from 20 milligrams a day up to about 100 milligrams a day to get good results. Anything beyond this would require a physician to monitor you or prescribe. We just recommend basic guidelines that fit your nutritional needs. Vitamin B6 is another of the B vitamins and uh, it's called pyridoxin. Your RDA is set at about 2 milligrams a day. If you just had two cups of brown rice in a day, that would meet your B6 requirements. Brown rice is one of the best uh, all-around complex carbohydrate foods. It's very healthful for you. It maintains good, even energy levels, and it's low in fat. Bananas are another wonderful source of vitamin B6, as are chestnuts. Chestnuts are one of the few nuts that are low in fat. Folic acid is another of the B complex. And lack of folic acid can lead to a deficiency situation. And we have found that the RDA is set at about 400 micrograms. One of the best sources of folic acid is boysenberries. A cup uh, would meet about nearly one-fourth of your needs. A half a, a cantaloupe would meet about one-eighth of your needs. Uh, it's been found that oranges and strawberries are a good source of folic acid as are tangerines, pears, and rhubarb. If you're going to take a supplement in a B complex, probably around 400 micrograms would be an appropriate intake. Panothenic acid, the RDA is 5 to 10 milligrams, another of the B vitamins. Uh, you can get a good source of panothenic acid from mushrooms, brown rice. It's even found in hot red chili peppers and sunflower seeds which are sprouted. Uh, the cabbage or cauliflower and wheat bran have panothenic acid in them. If you're going to take a supplement, anywhere from 5 to 30 milligrams would be a good safe range. Vitamin uh, C is one of the more written about vitamins that we know of. And it's known that the RDA is about 60 milligrams per day. You can get this amount quite easily from about one orange in a day, a cup of orange. However, you might not have been aware that strawberries have twice as much vitamin C as do oranges. Broccoli has three times more vitamin C than oranges. Red sweet peppers, four times more. And good old hot red chili peppers have seven times more vitamin C per cup quantity. Of course, you're not going to eat a whole cup of hot red chili peppers. But it does add quite a bit to the spice foods, and you can use them as another source of vitamin C. The nutrition program Optimum Health that we teach would allow you to get, with the wide variety of various fruits and vegetables, at least 300 to 600 milligrams of vitamin C per day from your whole natural foods. And it's always best to eat these foods as fresh as possible as soon as they come from the tree or sprout your foods to get more vitamin C. If you're going to take a supplement, the range would be about 60 milligrams up to about 500 milligrams a day. At this time, I think it's a little uh, premature to suggest to people to take more than a thousand milligrams or a gram a day. In certain instances, you may have been advised by your physician, and if so, you follow along with the guidelines. But the research right now indicates that vitamin C from whole natural foods can help to maintain good health, and along with the supplement, could certainly benefit you in many ways.
you can actually store vitamin C in your white blood cell Buffy coat. It saturates at a certain level. Most people, if they just get at least 100 milligrams of vitamin C a day, can saturate their uh, storage capacity. Now, if you don't get enough vitamin C, which usually only occurs if you're stranded on some island uh, away from fruits and vegetables or if you're in some situation of starvation, but it leads to scurvy, gum ble bleeds, the sore, the loose teeth, uh, uh, legs will swell up, and it could lead to death. Uh, once again, all fresh fruits and vegetables are going to supply you a good source of vitamin C. Linus Pauling has done a lot of work in this area. Some of his reports have been disputed, but I don't think anyone would disagree that a good whole fresh natural source is best for you. The use of vitamin D is important to good health, and the RDA is established at 400 international units. The supplement range would be up to 400 international units. It would be best not to take more than that amount because too much vitamin D could lead to a kind of a calcification of the arteries, which has happened in some cases with infants in England where they overdid the use of vitamin D, where now in England you can only get by prescription because of that abuse of the vitamin D. Actually, your best source of vitamin D is the outdoors daylight. If you just step outdoors for 15 minutes, allow your body to produce all the vitamin D it requires. It could even be a cloudy day, and so long as part of your face and skin is exposed, you're going to produce the vitamin D you need. Now, if the climate or the clothing does not permit uh, to get an adequate source of daylight outdoors, or especially with certain cultures where they expect people to kind of dress themselves and cover their face, uh, then a growing child probably would need at least a glass of fortified skim milk per day or three ounces of fish per day. Fish tends to vary in its vitamin D content depending on uh, where it uh, was swimming and so forth. Zinc is uh, a mineral that is needed at about 15 to 25 milligrams per day. You can get a good source of zinc from garbanzo beans, whole wheat flour, or wheat bran, and it's also found in lentil sprouts and soy sprouts and other foods. A supplement would probably range in the area of 15 to 25 milligrams to be in a reasonable level. Selenium has been written about a lot recently, and the amount of selenium in food varies depending on the concentration in the soil where it was grown. The uh, basic RDA is about up to 0.05 to 2 milligrams per day, and we get more than enough selenium from onions, cabbage, carrots, potatoes, tomatoes, grains, and cereals, fruits and vegetables. Our nutrition program that we teach is higher in selenium than most typical types of diets. There were some reports that selenium seemed to reduce the risk of heart disease, and they figured this out by looking at what people ate. But, of course, the people who were eating the most selenium were getting more whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. And, of course, those foods are low in fat and cholesterol. So right now, that isn't quite a clear uh, distinction that selenium does this. But uh, it is an antioxidant, and it can help to improve your health and maintain good health. It is necessary as a mineral to your health. Iron is a very popular uh, nutrient that we talk about. The RDAs for iron are 10 milligrams for the male and 18 milligrams for the female. The supplement range would also stay no more than 10 to 18 milligrams. You don't want to get too much iron because it could have toxic side effects. For example, over 200 milligrams a day 
has known to lead to some liver disorder. If you got 3 to 10 grams a day, it could lead to iron overload of the liver and even death. In certain cultures, like the Bantu natives, they do all their cooking in iron pots. And a little bit of iron that gets off into their food leads to this toxicity and actually kills more people in their culture from iron overload than kills in our country percentage-wise, as heart disease does. So if you're cooking with iron pots every day, I would suggest that you alternate the use of the type of cookware you use. Other good sources of iron could include uh, sprouted sunflower seeds, garbanzo beans, lentils, parsley, split peas, seaweed, uh, hijiki, excuse me if I'm not pronouncing that right, but it has about 29 milligrams of iron if you can handle eating it. Some people tell me they like it. I eat it every once in a while. There's other good sources of iron. Basically, its need is to produce hemoglobin in the blood to carry oxygen, prevent anemia, pallor, and fatigue. Calcium is essential to, to good bone integrity, to maintaining strong, healthy teeth, nerve, and muscle functioning. And the RDAs have been established at 800 to 1,200 milligrams per day. This range can easily be met by eating a variety of foods, including, for example, turnip greens, collards, kale, cabbage, garbanzo beans. Broccoli is a wonderful source of calcium. In fact, corn tortillas, if you just had the equivalent of five corn tortillas, there's more calcium per cup in, in the uh, tortillas, lime-treated, uh, than is in uh, milk. Some people cannot tolerate the use of dairy products or milk. They're allergic to them. Many races have an allergy where they don't produce a certain enzyme, and as they get older, the milk is undigested, and some of the symptoms of this allergy would include diarrhea, disorientation, the stomach bloats and distends because of the uh, rotting of the milk or dairy product in the stomach. It's a very common allergy. Uh, in fact, it even occurs in younger people. I'm allergic to milk. I don't use uh, dairy products in most cases. I find that if I use any amount of milk, I'll get sick. So what do I do to get my calcium? Well, I get enough calcium ounce per ounce from vegetables and various beans and peas. The vegetables are a wonderful source, as I said, as well as corn tortillas of calcium, and you'll get more than you need. So, although the Dairy Council tells us you must drink milk every day and use dairy products, that's not really quite true. Let me give you an example. When you reduce your protein intake and increase your complex carbohydrates, your body will absorb calcium much more efficiently. The uh, Eskimos are known to eat a lot of calcium, 2,000 milligrams a day. They eat the bones of the fish that they catch. However, they seem to develop osteoporosis, loss of bone material, and fractures and weakened bones by age 40, sometimes 15 years younger in their culture than in our culture. How could that be? Well, the Eskimos eat too much protein. They eat over 25% of their calories in protein. It's been found that any time you exceed 15% of your calories in protein, the protein leaves so much acid or waste product in the blood that minerals like calcium, magnesium, and zinc are drawn right out of your bones to neutralize it to maintain the, the uh, pH of the blood. If it doesn't, then you, you could actually die without a proper pH in the blood. And the penalty is the weakening of the bones, loss of your teeth. That happens in our culture so frequently. 
increased rate of fracture. In fact, hip fractures have been uh, recently considered the major cause of death in women past the age of 50. It's now probably surpassed uh, the death rate from breast cancer in women. It's among the leading causes now. And that's because of these weakened bones. And then once a person is uh, debilitated from this fracture, they may develop infections and pneumonia and other problems. Osteoporosis can be offset simply by reducing your protein intake and eating the whole natural foods. Ironically, some people try to increase their calcium intake by using more and more dairy products. But if you do that, you'll probably get too much protein and ultimately lose more calcium out the bones than you were trying to take in. Recent studies have shown that if the protein intake is over 90 grams a day, that your negative mineral balance, the acid buildup in the blood, will cause you to excrete calcium right out of the urine more than you can take in, even if you're taking supplements in. Now here's an interesting group of people, the Bantu natives. The Bantu people, the women, give birth to an average of nine children. They nurse each child for an average of two years. They spend 18 years in lactation breastfeeding. And you would think they'd need a lot of calcium, wouldn't you? But their average diet has only about 350 milligrams of calcium a day. Basically, they eat a complex carbohydrate, whole grains, and some vegetables and fruit, uh, about 10% protein diet. The interesting thing is that uh, they have no calcium deficiencies, they have strong bones, they don't lose their teeth as they get older, the children grow up healthy, free of rickets and other calcium deficiency problems that occur in other cultures, especially the problem of osteoporosis that occurs in our culture. It's just non-existent in their group. How do they do it? Well, it's because their diet is uh, a good, well-balanced nutrition diet of whole grains, fruits, and vegetables without the excessive use of protein. By doing so, the calcium they eat is absorbed properly and they maintain good health. Recent studies on vegetarians have shown that they have stronger bone density on x-ray than do meat eaters. So we're beginning to find out now that this problem of osteoporosis can be conquered simply by changing the diet also, of course, by exercising. We know that exercise increases calcium absorption in the bones. By stop smoking, because smoking pulls calcium out of the uh, bones and pushes it into the soft tissues of the arteries where you don't want it. And basically by doing regular exercises, as I mentioned, especially uh, aerobic, uh, that is, those that move the body with weight, like weightlifting or uh, uh, jogging or walking, uh, helps to retain calcium better than, for example, swimming. So calcium is uh, something that if you're going to take a supplement, keep it in about a 300 to 800 milligram per day, and it should be in balance with magnesium uh, in equal amount. The uh, use of potassium. Now, most people think of potassium and the need of about 2,500 milligrams a day. And the first thing a lot of people say is, I eat bananas. Of course, bananas are a good source of potassium. But did you know that garbanzo beans are three times higher in potassium than are bananas? That split peas are even higher in potassium? Winter squash is higher in potassium than bananas. And tomatoes are actually as high in potassium, too, as bananas. Cantaloupes are a good source, and carrots and avocado uh, in small quantity. Avocado, about a quarter of the avocado, and potatoes. Potatoes are a wonderful source of potassium, just about as high as are bananas. Sprouting of foods, keeping a fresh supply of whole natural food is very important to good health and nutrition.
And don't worry if you can't take and eat uh, the foods that I suggested. Just by eating a variety and alternating the foods that you eat from day to day, since you have a storage in your body, you won't have to worry about deficiencies. For example, your body can store potassium for one to two days if you're not getting any source of potassium. Uh, you can store calcium from 10 to 20 years uh, in the bones especially, but of course you don't want to be at a depletion of calcium, otherwise the penalty will be weakened bones later on. But you don't have to take in a calcium source every single day. But the foods we recommend, vegetables and grains, uh, beans, especially vegetables uh, as such, have uh, an ability to provide you enough calcium. Recently, uh, studies show they are absorbed as well as from other sources. Iron, you have a storage of four to five months. And vitamin A, you store from one to two years. So if you don't eat carrots every day or sweet potatoes, don't worry. You'll have enough stored. Vitamin B12 is stored from 10 to 20 years. Vitamin B3 has a storage of two to three months. Now. If you look at sodium, we store it for about two to three days. Now sodium, usually the problem here is excessive sodium intake. Your body only needs about one to two grams of sodium per day, that is. We get all the sodium we need from whole natural foods. Uh, if you eat packaged foods that have sodium added to them, you'll probably get another one to two grams, about four grams of sodium a day. That's okay. That's a fairly low sodium diet. But if you add salt to your diet, uh, you're going to maybe push it up to 10 grams or more, and then you'll have fluid retention problems and other side effects. Uh, you don't need to add sodium to your diet when you're exercising more. The body will adapt if you're in heat uh, areas. This is a, a problem that can be offset. Your body will adjust, and uh, you don't have to add sodium to your diet. Water, we store about four days, and water has recently been shown to affect your endurance levels athletes were given a choice and it was found that if you were deprived of water before you exercised that the athletes would fatigue much quicker. Now if the athlete was allowed to hydrate or drink extra water before they exercised they were able to last the longest. Now the group of athletes that could only drink water after they started when they got thirsty they lasted an intermediate rate. So we have found now that uh, uh, it's best before exercise to hydrate yourself and get enough water. The rule of thumb is to drink about a cup per every 15 minutes of intense exercise activity you anticipate and also another cup per every 50 pounds of body weight. So if you weigh 150 you'd want to drink about three cups of water plus if you're going to exercise 30 minutes another two, about five cups. That's quite a bit but you'll be able to function at your maximum intensity that day especially if it's hot out. Carbohydrates, we only have a few hours storage and this is important because if you don't eat frequent small meals of carbohydrate your blood sugar level may drop and then you have a hypoglycemic reaction and you'll be fatigued and tired and it's hard to get the glucose back up to a good range. It's good to eat regular amounts of potatoes and grains and fruits and vegetables to maintain that glucose level. You might notice on this diet that you'll eat more often because you have less fat in your diet. Fat sits in your stomach and kind of has so much calories that it'll take away your appetite. Whereas the complex carbohydrates uh, actually are burned efficiently and cleanly and you'll be noticing probably eating instead of three meals a day maybe four or five. That's okay to eat between meals. Protein, we store about six to seven weeks.
and we get a good source of protein from our whole natural foods. Fat, we store six to seven weeks. Some people tell me that they store it better than six to seven weeks. And when you look at them, I think I can agree with that. We have different stages to our nutrition program. And we want you to be aware that it's okay to cheat or substitute and change your diet. There's at least five different stages. Most people, when they first come to our program, are in stage one. And stage one can lead to poor health. That means for breakfast you eat eggs, bacon, donuts, coffee, use butter, margarine, drink alcohol, use whole milk, candies, sorbitol, sweeteners, ice cream, cheeses, sour creams, salted nuts and seeds, and red meats, and T-bone steak, and so forth, and basically a very poor diet. And a fair stage, most people are starting to reduce the amount of fat in their diet. Uh, they're switching and substituting. By stage three, you're in a good level. Maybe you're eating more whole grains by that time. You're uh, reducing to non-fat milk. You're using um, low-fat cheeses. You're using small amounts of chicken, fish, or turkey. And you're starting to move towards fresher foods. Now, in stage four and five, we call this excellent to optimum. By that point, you're using all, only, whole grains, uh, steel cut oats, multi-grains, four or seven grain type uh, cereals and pancakes. You're using fresh fruit, sprouted grain breads. Uh, you're using, uh, instead of butters or oils, you're using apple butter or, uh, or vegetable spreads. You're drinking fresh water. Uh, you're breathing clean air and you're eating more fresh fruit. Maybe you have a fruit trees growing in your backyard. Uh, you're moving towards the use of a variety of all vegetables, fruits, grains, beans and peas, and you're getting a supply of fresh water. You know, maybe you're getting some bottled sparkless water or, or a, wa a water uh, cleanser system you have, filtration. Uh, these are all important. Now some of the enemies to vitamin and mineral nutrition would be white sugar, It'd be white rice, white flour, alcohol, cigarettes, antacids deplete different minerals, baking soda can deplete B vitamins. Uh, so these are some of the enemies that you have to be careful of. And if you're using these items, which is probably going to happen in our society, unfortunately, you probably need some kind of a, a supplement uh, for preventative reasons. There's also a lot of hidden additives in foods. Ice cream, for example, has diethylglucol, which is also used in antifreeze and paint removers. They have a vanilla substitute that is also used to exterminate lice, and they have cherry flavorings. That's the same stuff they use in rubber dyes and plastic, and they have uh, pineapple flavoring that's used to clean textiles and leather, and there's a nut flavoring that's used to, in, in rubber cement, and then they have another banana flavoring that's used in paint solvent and strawberry flavoring and nitrate solvent. Well, how come they don't tell you these are solvents and they're used in these terrible products? Well, it's because all they have to do Instead of calling it its original name, like amyl acetate, they just call it banana flavoring. They don't have to call it paint solvent. If it's once removed, the food manufacturers don't have to put it on the label. So just because these things aren't labeled on your foods, it doesn't mean they're healthy for you. You're best to stick with whole natural foods. There's also going to be inevitable pollution. And it's been found that in the recent years, 
compared to prehistoric man, Caltech has discovered that we have a 500% increase in the rate of lead in our body. It only takes about four times more than that to reach a toxic level. So we're really at a borderline. That's why there's been a movement towards using non-leaded gasoline and getting lead out of paint bases and so forth. It's been found that these heavy metals can build up and certain tests like uh, hair analysis according to the medical journal Lancet is a, a good assessment of toxic metals in the body. There are certain foods that can help to remove heavy metals uh, those that are high in water-soluble fibers like oat bran and cornflakes which also happen to lower cholesterol they also seem to adhere to heavy metals and reduce their content in the body. So you certainly should use these as a preventative formula. I'd like to now discuss the needs for protein. Protein is necessary for good health of course but I think the confusion about your needs started back in 1914 when Osborne and Mendel did their original research studies on rats. They chose to feed rats various foods like eggs and the rats grew very big. Then they tried meat and the rats grew well and cheese and they grew well. Well then when they fed the rats potatoes or rice or corn they didn't grow very well. So we started out this concept of needing a complete protein that simulated the amino acid pattern of eggs. The mistake here was, of course, that rats are carnivores. They have sharp teeth and claws. They're much different than we are. They grow to full size in nine weeks' time. We take nearly 20 years to reach full size. It's been discovered recently that rats' breast milk is 25% protein. However, human breast milk is nice and adequate at 6% protein. When you give human breast milk to rats, they don't grow very well. This has been done in a recent study. Well, I don't think there's a nutritionist in the country to ever say that human breast milk has a poor quality source of protein. We know that infants do and thrive very well on human breast milk. So that actually showed us that this standard that was originally used with rats was not the best standard. Unfortunately, if you go to universities across the country, choose any university just about, uh, and I've been to several different uh, institutions where I've done studies in nutrition and health. But if you go to their bookstore and you buy one of their books on nutrition and look up the chapter on protein, don't be surprised if you open it up and see a picture of a big rat and a little rat. And what they'll say, if you read the text, in essence is that uh, in this particular book, it says rats will gain more weight on an egg diet than on a wheat or gluten diet, indicating there's a correlation between weight gain in rats and protein absorption or synthesis. Well, that's really unfortunate. They didn't even include any of the recent studies done with humans. Humans are much different. Humans, it's been found with infants when they're fed a variety of vegetable type foods, which if you fed these vegetable type foods to rats, they wouldn't grow very well. The infants, on the other hand, do very well, provided there's enough calories to meet their growth needs, as compared to milk or, or other substances of animal origin. Uh, we have found recently, too, when children, two to five years old, are given basically wheat only, compared to those children given wheat and lysine, and lysine was added to the wheat to give it an amino acid pattern similar to eggs, it was discovered that the children eating the wheat only grew as well, in fact even probably 10% better than the group eating the wheat and lysine. So if you had done this study with rats and given them wheat only or wheat and lysine, the rats would have grown very well with the egg type protein and not well at all with the wheat. Once again we're discovering 
that human requirements are much different than these old rat studies that are still being used. These studies are still being used to teach our future nutritionists, our future doctors, and educators. And it's got to stop. You've got to become aware that they're not keeping up with the current research. Maybe part of the reason is that these textbooks are sponsored by groups like the Dairy Council and so forth. And when they do so, they seem to include only studies that tell dietitians that you should be eating more eggs, meat, and cheese. Uh, when you read the research, I think you'll be convinced. Also, recently, when we looked at cultures which seem to be starving from protein deficiency, it wasn't protein deficiency. It was simply they were starving from lack of food. When you give uh, children in India uh, 300 extra calories a day with only 4% protein in it, which is very low, we find that the children from one to two years grow as much as 50% more, and those four to five years old grow 15% more. An incredible increase in growth rate to match the typical growth in children. It wasn't that they needed more protein. These poor children in other countries are just simply starving and not getting enough food. Kwashiorkor has been named for a protein deficiency. Actually, it's a calorie deficiency, not a protein deficiency. College students recently have been compared when you give them rice only or chicken and rice and they measured the amount of protein or nitrogen absorbed and it was found the group eating the rice only absorbed 20% more nitrogen or protein than the group eating the chicken and the rice. Something about chicken, actually the animal protein causes a uh, decrease in the ability of the body to absorb the protein. Once again, it's interesting to note that rice has about 6% protein the same protein percentage as human breast milk. Ounce for ounce, vegetables and grains, so long as you meet your calorie needs, will supply sufficient and even probably superior protein needs. The only problem that could occur is if you're not getting enough calories is that the protein that you eat could be burned for energy as calories instead of as use by the body. But once you reach ideal body weight, maintain your calorie needs and you'll get all the protein that you need. In a comparison of eggs to green peas, if you look at a, a chart from the nutrition value of American foods of the Department of Agriculture, we have found that uh, in a comparison that green peas have as much vitamin thiamine, they have equal amounts of riboflavin, they have niacin in green peas, which eggs do not have niacin, uh, they have as good a source of phosphorus, and uh, a better source of potassium in green peas and certainly much less fat and no cholesterol. The protein content of green peas is an excellent source and six grams compared to egg yolks in equivalent quantity. We know that when a person is fed a protein-free diet they excrete about 24 grams of protein a day in a 154 pound man. So we know we need to eat at least 24 grams worth of protein. The average person on our health, Optimum Health program gets at least 40 to 90 grams of protein per day. That's at least double to nearly five times the amount of actual protein that you need. You'll always be able to meet your needs uh, on this type of program. Don't worry about not getting enough. The problem is that most Americans eat too much protein and they start adding supplement powders and eating more and more protein and when you get too much there can be side effects. Some of the nutritionists were telling us that we had to combine 
rice and beans to get a complete protein or combine different foods if you read the book Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. And the problem was they based that book on an original premise that eggs were the best source of protein known. And if you just combine rice with beans to match the amino acid pattern or combine certain vegetables, if they looked like the egg pattern, you'd be fine. But that was the mistake. Eggs are not the standard of comparison for humans. In the recent 10th year anniversary edition, there's been a complete change around by the author of Diet for a Small Planet. And in quote, she states on page 162, In 1971, I stressed protein complementary because I assumed that the only way to get enough protein without consuming too many calories was to create a protein as usable by the body as animal protein. In combating the myth that meat is the only way to get a high-quality protein, I reinforce another myth. I gave the impression that in order to get enough protein without meat, considerable care was needed in choosing foods. Actually, it is much easier than I thought. So there you are. She's explaining that she had made a mistake by trying to compare vegetable foods to match the meat or egg patterns of animal product foods. You can simply get enough quality protein from rice or wheat or potatoes without combining them. It is good to eat a variety of these foods though for nutritional purposes related to vitamins and minerals, but don't worry about uh, getting enough protein. You'll always uh, get sufficient amounts. Athletes have always believed they needed more and more protein for athletic endeavors, yet there's been a change around recently. Even bodybuilders who you think need a lot of protein like Tom Platts who is a uh, Mr. Universe. He recently has switched to the high complex carbohydrate low-fat diet and he said uh, if you're going to build an out-of-this-world physique you need to constantly experiment. Therefore I increased my consumption of complex carbohydrate foods and immediately noted an upsurge in my strength and size levels. My energy was increased, my blood sugar levels seemed to stabilize. Today I follow a high carbohydrate medium protein low-fat diet particularly when I'm training for contests. So he is not going out of his way to use large amounts of protein foods. Even Chris Dickerson, who won the Mr. Olympiad, the highest award of bodybuilding, uh, stated that uh, since 1979 I have followed a low-fat diet. Since the body prefers to use carbohydrates for its energy needs, I feel more energy in my workouts, uh, on my low-fat diet than when I was on a low-carbohydrate regime. So we're finding now that the complex carbohydrates not only give sufficient energy, they provide adequate sources of protein. In fact, the carbohydrates serve as a protein-sparing effect. They help to protect your body muscles and organs because the carbohydrate gives you glucose to be burned for energy, while the protein in the carbohydrate is used by the body for proper purposes. We can get enough protein by eating a variety of foods. For example, you only need about 40 to 74 grams of protein a day. Um, the foods that you might want to eat more of could include split peas. One cup of split peas have 16 grams of protein. Green peas have 5.9 grams. Lentils, sprouts, sprouted uh, vegetable seeds, and so forth are really good sources of, of protein. Uh, and you can use small amounts of, of lean animal products, but it's best to get most of your protein from whole grains 
uh, vegetables and, and fruit and beans and peas. Now, vegetables and fruit cannot be relied on as a good source of protein as your total diet because vegetables and fruit are so low in calories, you may not get sufficient calories to meet your needs, and then those protein calories could be burned for, for energy instead of for use of the body. But if you meet your calorie needs, that is, you're not losing more weight after you reach your ideal body weight, uh, then you'll be able to provide proper body tissue production, muscles, your hormone, antibody, and hemoglobin will all function properly. All whole natural foods have protein in them. Even a cup of corn has five grams of protein. Even an orange has protein in it. Basically all these foods will supply your need. Now if you take in more protein because you're afraid, you think you're going to shrivel away as you get older, if you use a lot of protein supplements and eat more tuna and more chicken and uh, a lot of dairy product, that excess protein can lead to dehydration because it takes eight glasses of water to digest every gram of protein as compared to only one glass as that compared to carbohydrates. Dehydration will be noticeable. You'll, In fact, if you eat too much protein, you'll be thirsty a few hours later. Uh, you can notice this difference when you switch to a high-carbohydrate diet, and you'll notice that you're less thirsty. That's a good sign. Uh, urea, ammonia, uric acid, waste products build up. It could lead to kidney stones or gout from excess protein. And as we've mentioned, it may lead to osteoporosis from demineralized bones. It can worsen kidney or liver disorders. So protein consumption, uh, we have learned a lot in recent years uh, so the Optimum Health Nutrition Program will give you a better source of protein, a balanced source, just by eating the guidelines that we recommend. Now what about fat and fat intake? You do need fat in the diet. Linoleic acid is considered an essential fatty acid. Uh, you only need about 2% of your total calories in linoleic acid, which means only about uh, anywhere from two to four grams of linoleic acid. Now you should not use oils and add fats to your diet to get linoleic acid because they're processed and ironically when you use oils added to your diet they seem to deplete the linoleic acid. Your best source of linoleic acid should come from uh, foods like uh, whole sunflower sprouts. For example two cups of oatmeal will give you all the linoleic acid you need uh, let me give you an example too. Walnuts, if you just use two little walnuts, two or three nuts, that will give you all the linoleic acid you need in the day. You can eat a few almonds, about six almonds, and that will give you a good source. Uh, a few sunflower seeds, as we already mentioned, the sprouted are best. Even a tablespoon of sesame seed can give you all the linoleic acid that you need. Uh, so stick with the whole food. Instead of eating corn oil, go to the food that it came from. Go to the corn for your linoleic acid. And instead of using the safflower seed oil or sunflower seed oil, go to the sunflower seeds. Lettuce is a great source of linoleic acid. Chicken is a fine source. It's been found that when people in New Guinea who eat under 3% of their calories and fat in the diet, all they eat is basically sweet potatoes and their leaves. They get all the fat they need with no fat deficiencies when Dr. Press was experimenting to see what it would take to create a fat deficiency, he put people on IV, in other words just a glucose uh, needle uh, injection with just glucose and s certain nutrients but no fat. And he found eventually certain deficiencies developed like eczema and dermatitis. 
Then all he did was add 0.1% of linoleic acid. In other words, all he did was rub some uh, oil on their skin, and it was absorbed through the skin and relieved any of the fat deficiency symptoms. Now, you don't have to do that type of thing, but just be sure to eat uh, oatmeal and whole uh, natural foods to get your, your linoleic acid to meet your nutrition needs. When you resort to processed oils, you'll have a problem. For example, if you take corn or sunflower seeds, they put a solvent on them, and then they heat it to very high temperatures. They add lye and bleaching agent. Uh, the odors will be produced, so they have to add an antioxidant, and you're left with residual solvent and so forth, and then they call this purified oil. Now, some people ask me, what about cold process oil? Well, that's not much better, because the only step they skip is the heating process, which certainly does destroy linoleic acid, but it's still going to have the residual solvents and the, the chemicals that could be left in there. Uh, cold press process has only been available since about 1920, and uh, it's just the extraction of oil into your diet. Uh, you would not think that sugar is a good source of food. Sugar was processed right from the whole sugar beet. Sugar beets are perfectly healthy for you. Well, the same is true of oil. The corn is perfectly healthy for you. The, the sunflower seeds are healthful for you in small quantity. But if you extract out the oil, then it's processed, just like a sugar. So don't believe these people who say you have to add a tablespoon or two tablespoons of oil to your diet. You don't. Now, if you must use oil in your diet, in your cooking and so forth, rely on a very small quantity of something like olive oil that extends a long way, and you can get by with uh, a much smaller use of it. Um, I personally have not found any uses for oils in my diet for at least seven years. I haven't uh, needed to add oils to cooking. You can use nonstick pans, microwave. Uh, there's several ways to prepare your foods without having to use oils. I can assure you that you'll start to feel much better as you start following the nutrition guidelines that we teach you. I'd like to open up to questions at this time. Is it possible to be protein deficient? Protein deficiency generally only occurs in the lack of calories. So once again, it's not the lack of protein in the diet. It's just the lack of proper whole foods to meet your needs. By eating enough grains, vegetables, and fruit, will I really find the best source of quality protein? According to recent studies on humans, your best source is from the vegetable and grain type foods. Protein is not as efficiently absorbed in the animal sources, and this is based on some very thorough research with humans instead of with rats. Name some of the best protein sources for humans. Well, the best sources of protein can include uh, whole sprouts, brown rice, grains, whole wheat bread, beans and peas, small amounts of yams and asparagus and cherries, even fruits have uh, a little bit of protein. The overall diet will give you 40 to 70 grams of protein a day at least. Name some foods and approaches that would build muscle and gain lean weight. Well, the best approaches would include the high complex carbohydrate diet with sweet potatoes and whole grains to give you enough calories to build muscle. You'd want to start exercising, especially with weightlifting. That'll help to build lean tissue. 
Is it always necessary to combine vegetables and protein like rice and beans at the same meal to find a complete protein? No, it's not necessary. The foods uh, supply all the amino acids in each uh, vegetable and grain. Uh, those people who say that there are amino acids missing in certain foods are not quite uh, correct in that uh, assumption. The nutritional analysis of foods shows us that the amino acids are present. They're just in different balances uh, and patterns. They don't have to be in the same pattern as eggs, for example. Eggs were not a good uh, comparison base. Will I have to worry about getting enough protein during weight loss? When you're losing weight, you're going to be getting a supply of calories from your body storage of fat. While at the same time, by eating the high complex carbohydrate, vegetables, fruits, and smaller amounts of grains, you'll have glucose present to spare your body proteins. And inside the starchy complex carbohydrates, there'll be sufficient protein to meet your needs. Once you reach your ideal body weight, of course, you'll need to maintain a uh, calorie intake, more grains and um, pastas and so forth to meet your needs. I've been told to be sure to take a calcium supplement in, in order to prevent osteoporosis. What comment do you have? Calcium supplements would not hurt you so long as it's in combination with magnesium in equal balance, but they're not going to really get to the cause of the problem. Uh, you first must learn to reduce the protein intake. Start eating more rice, which is like 6% protein. Eat more uh, whole wheat bread and vegetables and grains. That way, uh, by reducing your protein intake, your body will start to reabsorb ca lost calcium. You can also start exercising to retain calcium levels. Uh, these are the things you need to do. And then if you want to take a supplement on top of that, that would be perfectly okay. Can weak bones or osteoporosis be reversed? It used to be thought that osteoporosis was inevitable as you got older. And in many uh, women, uh, menopause, when that reaches, uh, women have eight times higher rate of osteoporotic problems and fractures related than do men. But we've discovered now that it can be prevented and it can be reversed. The only way that's been shown to really work effectively is through regular consistent exercise that helps to retain and reabsorb lost bone material at two to three percent per year and over a ten-year period you can regain twenty to thirty percent of your lost calcium and, and minerals in the bone which usually a lady by age seventy-five has lost twenty or thirty percent so instead of aging your bones as you get older you can strengthen them uh, along with the high complex carbohydrate low-fat diet you'll be able to reabsorb that lost calcium uh, and together you'll, you'll have an unbeatable combination. Is it possible to be fat deficient? It's, it's surprising that a fat deficiency can occur in a person who eats a high-fat diet. If they're eating a lot of processed oils and fats, a lot of times the vital linoleic acid, essential fatty acids, become depleted, and they'll get symptoms of eczema and dermatitis, these symptoms here of skin disorders and so forth. Um, by reducing your total fat intake and then relying on the natural sources of fat that we know of in linoleic acid, you can then reverse any condition uh, and prevent a fat deficiency. So and now in understanding nutrition, protein, fat, vitamins, and minerals, if you're also interested in what kind of supplements to take, 
There's so many different products out on the in the stores, different name brands. What I suggest is look at your vitamin and mineral label. Read the dosages, the amount of, of milligrams of each nutrient, and see if they match the ranges that we recommend. You don't want to take too much because toxic intake could be harmful, especially with the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, and so forth. You want to be sure you're getting enough. Always begin with your whole natural foods. Then if your supplement falls into a proper range of the RDAs, uh, about the only thing that may be different than the RDAs would be possibly a little bit more B-complex would be helpful, especially if you feel that there's extra sugar or alcohol slipping into your diet. That should be a winning combination for you, and good luck to you in optimum health. Thank you. That was an amazing show, and now I want to put it all together for you. How do you locate these incredible natural herbs, organic, the best, designed to help you to improve your hormonal balance, give you energy, help you to look and feel great? DocNutrients.com. This is our sponsor. There is a special quiz. Please take the immune system quiz, and it's going to give you some incredible feedback and ideas about how to strengthen your immune system during these troubling times. Be well. It's 2021 and we're here to support you.